a listener production. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Melbourne Around Town. I'm Katja Vaktul, Broadsheet's Editorial Director and the host of this guide to Melbourne. Simon Denman is one half of the team behind some truly exceptional Melbourne venues, Fitzroy North's Neighbourhood Wine and Old Palm Liquor and Bahama Gold in Brunswick East. He owns these bar diners with his wife and the group's head chef, Almay Jordan, and he looks after the outstanding wine and drinks lists at these venues. If you've been to Simon and Almay's venues, you know the appeal. They opened Neighbourhood Wine in 2013. It's a wood-panelled sanctuary full of cracking wine, excellent bistro fare. There are rustic floorboards, cosy wooden tables as a candlelit bar. It's got a real clubhouse feel. And there's, you know, blues records on high rotation. It's a great spot to hang out for an afternoon or a night. Next came Old Palm Liquor, which shares some things in common with its older sibling. Great taste in music. It's a well-worn aesthetic. But it's also different in its own way. If Neighbourhood Wine is about a kind of gilded speakeasy mood, Old Palm Liquor is a mix of golden brown timber panels, stretched rattan ceilings, vintage padded stools and genuine 80s brown tiles. In Broadsheet's story about the opening, publications director Nick Connellan wrote, if a post-war Italian social club took over a plantation-style home, this might be the result. The younger sibling, Bahama Gold, is a tiny wine bar that's been a hit since day one. It adjoins Old Palm Liquor and boasts several high-end speakers as well as absurdly good value house wines. And there's a very interesting backstory behind how Simon makes that happen. In fact, there's a lot of very interesting backstories behind Simon and Almay's venues, and Simon is here to tell us about them. Welcome to Broadsheet Around Town, Simon. Thank you. You and Almay have an ability to open a new venue that feels like it's been there for years. How do you do that? I wouldn't say that there's a formula, or maybe there is. It's probably being very conscious of materials um, and how they wear. I think. We've all been into a venue that opened six months ago and looks like it's 10 years old, you know, and some, you know, th- there's a reason why you use various textures and finishes. Uh, the other side of it is probably approach we've fair, from a fairly organic approach to design. We don't use architects or interior designers or anything. Um, and it's, I guess we start with the space and we just keep building it and adding to it um, in a sense that feels correct. Um but it's also and, the mood. I think what's great about your venues is you step in and not only is it the design, you feel like this place was open for 10 years before and that everyone inside the venue has been going there for 10 years. That And that's a special thing. Does that just happen organically and there's nothing you can put your finger on that creates that? Yeah, I'll say like it does, it, to a degree it does happen organically and I think it's more like, um, without creating too much mysticism around it, it's more like it's gut feeling. Like I think... You do something, you look at it, and it's just like, oh, that light doesn't feel right. It's jarring somehow, or the acoustics don't feel right. We need to find a solution for the acoustics, but we want to do it in a way that it's not obvious we did it. Um, a whole lot of conscious decisions without knowing kind of where you're headed, if that makes sense. Um, and right, so it's not planned out from the beginning. You, no, you iterate. No, and I think, I think, and that's probably the key to it, being, you know, you have to keep changing, and, like, you can have a great idea and a concept, but... 
you know, along the way you were going to realize it was actually a terrible idea or, you know, the fundamentals of it don't work. Or but has that ever happened to you? I feel like you guys haven't opened any venues. I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> um, but the, it's more the process, I think. Like you do, you have um, concepts and ideas and I guess, you know, the, the dream of, you know, what you, what you want it to be. But in reality, you, know, you might have a great idea and then you realize what it's going to cost and you're like, oh, okay. Mm. Or you might realize it's going to take too long or, you know, supply chain problems like trying to file source materials or trades. And they're like, yeah, cool. I'll do that in six months. You're like, mate, not going to work. Um, so you have to come up with another strategy and, and you sort of just keep chipping away at it. And even once you get it open, it's, I, I think it still takes like, you know, a year or two to even get close to sort of finalizing all the different moving parts. I think that's probably also a big part of it, you know, between Alma and myself is, looking at something going, oh, this, this, this is something we have a space we enjoy and be with, a space mm-hmm. that we enjoy interacting with. And, and if we're not enjoying that process, then we go, okay, something's wrong. Do you feel like the menus change a lot since you opened or do you think maybe one of the things that's benefited its longevity is because the menu has stayed more or less in the same direction? Yeah, so the evolution of the food is the other side of it. And I think, um, and it's really interesting, particularly when we opened Neighbourhood Wine, we sort of just both come from London circa 2010, something like that. Um, very much the sort of, you know, nose to tail, Fergus Henderson, St. John, that was all the rage. Mm. Um, and that was that was what we knew from over there as well, and particularly that sort of English fair that um, is of that sort of paired back, casual French sort of technique using Italian and Spanish and, you know, North African ingredients wherever they went on holidays that weekend, you know. that's a, That's a big part of that sort of English cuisine and, you know, we came back here, and at that time when we got here, it was spherification, foams, gels, smoke under little glass domes, dehydrated, everything was a powder, and it was not at all what rang true to us. It's, it's surprising how far I'd even say, particularly for our corner of the industry has come in the last 10 years, it's everything's a wine bar and it all seems you know ubiquitous now, but it's like... Back then, there, there really wasn't that much of it. Um, I and- looked back at the early stories about about Neighbourhood Wine yeah. opening and it was designated as a wine bar. Yeah. And that makes sense, as you said, in the current climate where it's almost like there's more wine bars than restaurants, Correct. but the wine bar is a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. But it was, yeah, that was not a term that was as ubiquitous then. Yeah, and, and I think there was some key, you know, people and definitely back then as well around town, but it, it, was, it wasn't a lot. And I think... And so when we opened it, it was actually quite hard. So Almey wanted to cook this sort of food that resonated more with like that sort of back to basics, kind of like, you know, the based in French technique, but kind of, and quite technique driven, but but simple in nature, you know, wholesome, the true sort of kind of bistro fare, if you will. All the chefs she was hiring, it was she would actually have to teach them how to properly cook on pans and because they'd all been using water baths and uh, it was... And it was actually a problem. Um, so, and I think, you know, teach them to cook sauces and all the above. Um, and so I guess that's where we started out. And it wasn't even necessarily on trend then at the time, but it was like interesting. And I guess, you know, Zeitgeist, whatever, we were not alone. There was other people around us thinking the same thing. And you could see over the next few years, that became very much what people were looking for and what the industry was looking for and what chefs were looking to do. Um, and, and I guess a progression of that, when you talk about all palm liquor is, you know, Ali being South African, she grew up, you know, they cooked, you know, every second night on a wood fire out, you know, the braai um, out the back of their kitchen. Um, and we do the same thing at home here. And I think, so that was the next progression. So it went from that more sort of wholesome, you know, authentic sort of dining fare, if you will, 
Um, and the evolution of that was in fire, you know, which is obviously also now that's staying everywhere. With us. <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So also, you know, being, you know, collaborative, like working with all these great young chefs who have all these, you know, ideas and they're all out there drinking and eating and traveling and trying new things and being excited about, you know, new ingredients they've discovered and techniques they've discovered or recipes or so um, or something just from their, they know from their family history, like their nonna or their whatever used to cook it like this. And, and, and she embraces that, you know. And she fosters she, that. She makes absolutely. sure that those ideas can come to the table and that they might actually one day see see the diner. Absolutely. Going back to all these sort of steps with you, whether you talk about the venue or you talk about the food, it's you are always adapting, always evolving based on what's around you. I think it's very hard to be static. And then uh, the food is very much a part of that. The beverage is a part of that. Like, mm. you know, when we started out the whole lo-fi minimal intervention side of wine was really just kicking off. And so it was about like you evolve with that as it comes through the industry. And I think food side of things as well, it's it's exactly the same. And I think it's you always have to be just kind of, you know, tweaking as 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 need be. Like that that's a big part of the way Alme cooks in the sense that it's always evolving based on the season, which means you're always forced to be changing. And if you're always changing, you're always looking for new ideas and and it becomes a culture of, oh, you know, I've had this dish and it might be a great dish, but they're like, oh, I'm feeling a bit tired or just bored of cooking it. Let's do something different, you know, mm. and I think and so it naturally it kind of evolves. Did you two meet in London or you were already together and went across there? Now, she's her we, background was cooking, yours is in wine. Yeah, correct. Um, no, we met in London. We okay. did. So we worked um, in, a, in a wine bar over there and I was a, I was a manager and Almey was a sous chef and it was around the GFC and they were sort of trying to kick everyone they could out of the UK, right. particularly Australians and so I was in a position where I couldn't I couldn't extend my visa, um, and so we came back, and she'd actually just gotten a sort of temporary or permanent visa or something. She opted to come back with me. I know we were about thirty at the time, and I think it was also too we'd gone through all oh, a little bit going back to as I said, like we'd come out of this wine bar culture over there, um, and we're sort of looking around, not seeing saw a couple of places doing something similar, but not quite what we were looking to do at the time. Um, so we thought, well. Why don't we just do it ourselves? Now, and that takes us to the venue or the building in which Neighbourhood Wine exists, which has a very interesting story. I'm sure all your locals know the story, but this place was unused for 25 years until you guys decided to open a restaurant there. Tell us about its history. We were looking um, for a venue for a year or so. Um, so I was pretty across every little change that had happened daily on you know, commercial real estate sites on site online. And this ad popped up and I, I couldn't actually figure out what it was. It was, you know, this old space and it had you know, funny old furniture and there was an old full-size billiards table and, uh, and it was in Fitzroy and I couldn't, couldn't quite understand what it was or where it was and didn't have a lot of detail on the ad. I made an appointment to go and I rocked up and I was, I think I was the, Second person to look at it, the first had been there four minutes before me and he was someone looking to open, I think he said it was an Indian restaurant, um, but he didn't understand how it would work. Uh, and I walked in, had n- no idea what I was looking at, but sort of thought it was, you know, hilarious basically. So Why? Oh, it was just, I mean, if you've been there, it's, I think it's even harder to explain now because we, we took a lot of stuff out of there. Um, maroon carpet and the about 50... Franco Cozzo, solid brass chandeliers hanging everywhere. And um, it was just, it was about as authentic as you could get. Um, because, of course, what had it, did you get told yeah, then and so there what it had I, been? I, or? I didn't, 
I knew sort of. I, it was it was made. It was told to me by the agent that it would had been a a, a gaming room in the eighties, but I didn't I didn't know the full story. Yeah, I feel like that doesn't quite <laughs> no do it justice. Like a, like a gentleman's gaming room or something to that effect. And I went okay. Um, but on the spot, I made an offer and put a you know letter of intent in. And you know when we first went in to get the keys, and I met the I met the owners, a uh, family that are a little bit infamous of late they had the restaurant Woodstock downstairs and they owned the building and all the rest and the agent said oh the family want to have a chat to you and so I sat down in there at a table in the restaurant pizzeria um, and they all the whole family sat around the table with me and there's a nonna and the grandpa Frank and there's Tony and there's the real estate agent um, and we sit and we go over the terms of the deal and walk walk through it all and in the end we agree to it and and then I, you know, go to stand up and shake everyone's hands. And as I'm standing up, I turn to Frank and he's about five foot tall. Um, to put that in context, I'm about six four. And he looks at me and he hasn't said anything the entire time we're sitting there. And he puts his hand out, he puts it on my shoulder and he says, sit. Huh. <laughs> he sits me down and he leans over me. We sit here, we sit here. We talk, we talk, I listen, I listen. And he pauses and he's because all I see, and then he puts his finger in my face and he's like waves it at me. He's like, all I see. And he reaches out and he grabs my eyebrow and pulls it out and says, all I see is this long eyebrow. Not <laughs> <laughs> just like the whole room just breaks down and he's like, and the, the son's like, ah, I'm a my father was a barber for 30 years. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, and like, yeah, but it was a very, very sort of funny, tense moment. Anyway, that was kind of the relationship I had with them going on for the whole time they were there. I get up and then we go upstairs and while we're walking through after that, the son tells me and he's like, yeah, so yeah, it was a casino back in the day, you know, the Carlton crew. And I'm like, okay. I like, didn't know any of this before I signed it, but that's fine. <laughs> um, they got shut down and yeah, there's a bit, bit of a thing back in the day, but didn't lead on too much. And this wasn't any casino, of course. This is Alphonse Gangitano is the sort of, you know, who start kicked off the the start of the underbelly series, if you will. Mm. You know, yeah, the the Vince Colosimo character. Yeah, it was his it was his casino back in the eighties. He'd had um, this dream of owning like a boutique underground casino, right? And then this is this is the place. It got raided um three times. It was open about five weeks. Uh, <laughs> around, around about eighty seven or something. But they made, didn't they make $800,000 in that? They made, apparently they made enough in that time to pay, but they spent about a million bucks on it in the 80s. And apparently they made that back in like the five weeks it was open or something like that, apparently. Um, but as we, and when we took it still, there was a big sort of reinforced steel door and then another steel gate inside that. And there was buzzers to get through it. And we obviously took all of that down. At the top of the stairs is actually, which is still there, there's a little switch that's hidden. And you press it and a buzzer goes off and there's a, one of the panels in the fire room pops open and that's where they would throw everything and then they close the panel up again and say, yeah, nothing to see here. And like, yeah, they had the one-armed bandit illegal poker machines and we found like the little chips and all sorts of things from those. The other thing I wanted to talk about while we've got you is something that you're doing that, as I understand it, I don't know if anyone else is doing this um, in the capacity you are, which is you've partnered with wineries so Little Ready was one of them, Kerner, and you're buying an entire vintage up front and then you're selling that, like bringing that back to the venues and selling yep. it, which is one of the reasons you're able to keep prices low in some ways on those house wines. Are you aware of anyone else doing that and how did that idea come yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some people doing it these days. Um, 
It was actually working with um, a, a wine importer who's based out of Adelaide. He started uh, bringing these sort of reasonably newish sort of technology. It was about eight, I think I must have started doing it about eight years ago, maybe even nine. I think it was about eight years ago. Key kegs, which were a sort of a, a bladder-based sort of a recyclable plastic keg charged with argon, which makes it an inert environment. So the, the wine keeps quite well in there or whatever you have in there quite, keeps quite well. Um, so this was a sort of newish technology back then, and there was a young wine importer who was bringing in Prosecco from Italy in these key kegs, um, and he sort of came to me and he's like, I've got this thing, I wanna, I'm trialing it, just trying to figure out how it'll work, and um, would you be willing or keen to have a play with you know, pouring it? And so uh, we did, and, and it worked quite well for us for a while. Um, we had some varied success because it always seemed to be a sparkling, could have some issues with it going flat and whatnot. And at some point, I think he found that he had that same issue when he tried to put in other venues that have issues and mm. they weren't willing to work and work it out. They just wanted it to work or not work, you know. And so I think he put it in places and they, they'd have too many complaints and so it was too much of a hassle. And so he decided to ditch it. Um, but it was working quite well for us because we'd sort of been persisting with it and working out the kinks in it. And I asked if we could, he could he just import the wines direct for us directly. And he did that for us for a while. And then at some point, I think, I can't remember why, I think the, the quality changed and the price went up and it, the, the dynamics and economics of it just sort of changed a bit. And um, at that time, we were still looking at it and going, it's a good idea though. And I actually, I think it was um, uh, the first person I think I did it with was actually, I was talking about it with a um, winemaker here in the Yarra Valley, Dave McIntosh from Arfion. Um, and he actually said he had a he had a whole bunch of cab, light cab franc and it might work and, um, you know, that we could chill a bit and thought it was sound like a good idea to try and do a still wine. And so we, and obviously we'd had success with doing the Prosecco and, um, and the idea of doing something local kind of rang true to us. Mm. Um, and I think we then went down that path with him and once again, a bit of trial and error and went, okay, this is a thing. We've got something here. In that time, we sort of worked with a pile of producers. I think it was like we worked with, um, you know, Tom Shobrook from over in South Australia pretty early on. We worked with Gary Mills from Jamsheed for a long time. Um, and then eventually sort of along the way we started working with the Kerner brothers mm. over in the Clare Valley. And we've had sort of a longstanding relationship with them for years now. And they, um, and all the way doing this, it was always like a bit of a like, a, a, what wine do you have or what can we blend or, you know, pre-vintage we talk about it, you know, with some of the guys and, you know, go, oh, maybe we could pick a bit of, buy a bit of fruit and we'll make a wine and so loosely all along the way coming up with almost like a recipe or a style that we were trying to make. Um, and I think that sort of, you know, the culminated in when we working with the Kerners where we have sort of like a brief and they'll, they'll put together a wine that they think fits that for us. Um, and they'll send us a sample and we're like, Oh, that's great. Maybe just tannin profile a bit much, maybe dial back on these grapes mm. and maybe add a bit more of these or we want some more aromatics or freshness or and that wine is then served across all three venues? Yeah, correct. Yeah. correct. And also on, well, we deliver it online as well. So. Oh, okay. You say there's others doing that. I just don't know that many restaurant owners who are buying vintages up front. Having the three venues and also the online site where we can do sales there too means that we're in the position where we can buy, I think, you know, from the Kerners at this point, sort of ranges from about fifteen to 20,000 litres of wine we buy from then. Um, there's also... Pat Underwood from Little Ready, we do a skin contact and agree with him every year. And, you know, that's sort of 5,000 plus a year or something. And, and so what does that mean for a glass of wine in your venue? It like, means, does that mean it's less than you might find elsewhere? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think the it, all, all the way through it, it's just, it's just, I guess, economies of scale, right? Yeah. So 
doesn't mean the quality's dropping. It just it just means that we're cutting out middlemen, we're cutting out you know packaging, we're cutting out labour. It means we can do a glass of wine and the, for about ten dollars. Um, and these wines, keeping in mind from these producers, like the wines would be normally anything from fifteen to twenty dollars if it was mm, from the bottle. Right. Um, so it's it's a, it's a significant saving. Oh, and the cost of living crisis that's huge. Yeah, as well. Ab- absolutely. Even in a, I mean, even in good times, that's a big saving. But at the moment, that's pretty incredible. You know, value proposition, right? You know, I think you know people trading down, but they still want quality. You know, and they still and then, and that's fair enough. You know, and I think it's about you know people deciding what what you know they're willing to spend and what they value most for mm. their money. And I think that's where you know, and if you you know enjoy a good glass of wine, and you know you look for, and they're always out. There's all, always good examples of good value wine out there that are of a high quality, made by someone good. It's just you know you got to search for them, and that's that's yeah. that's, that's 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 the game, I guess. Um, and I guess probably what we're trying to do with that is like sort of through this process, I guess, standardize and streamline that process where we can maintain that sort of uh, good value glass of wine with quality always. You know, it's mm. not just like the, you know, there was a good deal on this or that or it was a vintage that was forgotten or something, mm. you know, so. What are you guys focused on now? Like, is there another venue on the horizon or is that just so, somewhere in the future? Any chance of leaving the north side, bringing some of us south siders <laughs> that magic? Hey, maybe, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Um, it's possible. <laughs> I feel I'm not. I'm not too convinced <laughs> by that answer. Uh, my, my, the, the triangle, north side triangle, I live in is pretty small. I've got to. I've got to concede. I live about five minutes from work and the venue's about five minutes from each other and my kids go to a school about five minutes from that. So. Okay. I'll, that's okay. I'll, I'll cross the bridge. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us that's today, Simon. I think that people will have learned some things about venues they love that they didn't know. Oh, thank you for having me. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends and leave us a review. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening now. Listener.